when you froze. Hey everyone, I'm Eddie Harold. Welcome to our Breath Expert series, and we're happy to have you for this, this week's installment. Hello again, friends. Awesome to be with you. This week we have amazing Julia Wall with us, who's just a North American pleasure, and we're just so honored to have her share her information and skills with us for the next hour of our lives. But before we begin, I'm going to read Julia's bio. If you want to sit tall and close your eyes and just take in this information into every cell of your body and just relax and get yourself present, that's great. After spending 20 years plus as a critical care nurse, Julia was introduced to an amazing forward-thinking dental provider that was able to provide successful to treat her intractable migraines and sleep issues. This chance meeting opened up a whole new world for Julia. Applying herself to taking multiple sleep and craniofacial courses along with her insatiable appetite for research led to the discovery that sleep is so much more than just closing one's eyes. Realizing that this information is sorely lacking in all areas of healthcare, as well as in the general population, she created the International Airway Advocate Program for the Foundation for Airway Health. Additionally, Julia is a published author, editor-in-chief of the Best Sleep Magazine, and a member of multiple professional bodies. She lectures internationally and is an expert on applying sleep and craniofacial assessments in the healthcare environment. Woo. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, Julia. How are you? Oh, it's my pleasure to be here with you guys today, and I'm super excited about this. You know, when I when I when I think about sleep health, I, I can't help to visualize, you know, your face coming to my mind and all the different disciplines that, that you bring to the table to help felt help folks really amplify, you know, that downtime, that sleep time, which is really the backbone of our uptime, our conscious time. Can you explain to us a little bit about your background, about how you got so passionate about this sleep health? Well, I've always been really passionate about medicine. And in my career as a nurse, I worked in acute psychiatry, I worked in corrections and emergency room and ICU. And I took every course out there that I could so that I would feel comfortable that if you ever needed my help, that I would be able to potentially save your life. Like that's just, you know, you wanna have that confidence when you're brought in by an ambulance that the nurse who's treating you knows what they're doing. And so I felt really, you know, I got to a point in my career where I felt confident about that. But yet there were still always certain conditions and certain issues that we just never seemed to kind of get on top of. And you always wonder why, um, you know, I'd look and see how old the person was. And I, as I saw my age getting closer and closer and closer to that age, I started to feel a little nervous. And I'm thinking, why? What is it about this person that has caused them to have a heart attack at the age of 40? or to have congestive heart failure, or you can't get their diabetes or their high blood pressure under control. What is it that is affecting this person 
different from this person over here. It hardly seemed fair and it seemed like we were missing something. So when I met this dental provider who's, who was teaching about sleep and the role of sleep in our lives, it really, I was like, why have we never, uh, in my career, why have we never discussed this? Why was that not a focus? When you think about one third of our life, we spend sleeping. Um, that's a pretty good chunk of our day. And yet we were asking patients over and over and over again about their daytime choices. You know, what happens during your day? But nobody was ever asking what is happening during your night. So once I started to learn about that and realized that the missing key to why people have all these conditions is what's happening during sleep. I was just like mind blown, can't get enough of this information. And then also in a panic, how do we get this information out to everybody so that they aren't being sabotaged um, every night when they go to sleep with their health efforts? Mm. Well, we're joined today by my partner, my wife, the boss, Wendy. So we're really happy to have her join us. We've been friends for uh, quite some time now, and, and we've sat back and we've just enjoyed your career blossom to what it is today. And I know your best days are in front of you. Uh, so, Wendy, is there something you want to ask Wendy about or uh, Julia about today? No, I, I for the moment, I just wanted to share with the audience that you are um, you're a digger, right? You're you're never satisfied with an answer. Um, you always have to go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, and you're always searching for root cause. And that's just one of the things um, I love about you. So it's going to be so fun to take on this topic today because um, sleep, uh, people are really suffering mm -hmm. from lack of sleep for so many reasons. Um, and of course, for us, we look at the breath component of it. So it's going to be really awesome um, to dive into some of this with you today. So yeah, take us away, Ed. So, you know, when we think of the overall, the sleep and the breathing, you know, we have this, you know, sleep disordered breathing model. And then we have this other model called breathing disordered sleep. You know, what came first here, the chicken or the egg? Exactly. Exactly. So the way the system is right now, the, the what most people know about having a diagnosis related to a sleep related issue kind of surrounds the snoring aspect and obstructive sleep apnea. So there's a lot of anxiety in the public about going to get tested to see what's wrong with their sleep because they're afraid they're going to get prescribed uh, a machine that they don't want to wear. And to me, that that triggering of that fear and that anxiety to people, you know, will come back around to that because that's so connected with their daytime breathing. But in healthcare, all we're looking at is you know, as they went to sleep, everything relaxed, their tongue relaxed, it occluded the airway. So they stopped breathing for a few seconds, their oxygen drops. Oh, okay, let's give them an, a CPAP, let's give them an oral appliance, let's intervene. But nobody actually is really going back to see what the underlying cause was. And, and if you, can I digress a little bit into sleep? Please. You go okay. where you need to go, girl. Okay. We're right here with you. All right. So when you look at the structure of sleep itself, you know, there was a quote that for many years is sleep is of the brain, by the brain, for the brain. And unfortunately, what that's done is it's caused everybody to just narrow in 
on what's happening in the brain on a cellular level. And <clears throat> there are so many components to sleep and it, it's part of our, you know, our daytime, nighttime, sleep and wake. But then even in sleep, there is a wakeful part of sleep, which is our REM, uh, while we're dreaming and our brain is really active. And then there is a sleeping part of our sleep where our brain kind of shuts down and our body gets repaired. So there's still this dynamic happening even while we're sleeping. Um, and all of it is dependent on cellular respiration. So it all it's like if you, you think about as we're awake and we're functioning and we're moving and we're doing, we are not responsible for all the little feedback loops that are going on in our body to make sure that we're stable, that our temperature stays a certain rate, our blood pressure, our heart rate. The majority of us are not like completely out of control. We trust our body has all these systems in place for monitoring. The same thing happens at night, except that what most people are unaware of is that what you do during the day will affect what happens at night. So when you look at sleep breathing disorders, we tend to think it's middle-aged, overweight men. And that has been such a misleading um, media perpetrated type of visual of what sleep apnea looks like. Now, having said that, when I started in my nursing career, we used to have wards full of people that had tracheostomies and you'd get assigned to work the trach ward and you'd go and you'd clean out this little hole they would put to completely bypass this area to provide air to the lungs. So clearly that tells me um, there's an issue that's happening right here that is affecting the person's ability to sleep, right? It makes sense. It's just that since that time, we've invented this, um, this hose that blows air in to keep that open. The problem is that when you look at the statistics of sleep disordered breathing, it's highly uh, correlated to a stressful daytime. So your first responders, your military, your law enforcement, they are disproportionately represented in terms of people who have sleep apnea and um, sleep breathing disorders, but they're not overweight. They're not unfit. You look at athletes, they're not unfit. So what is it that's happening or that's being missed? And so you look at the stress response and our stress response should be a good thing it's what makes you feel excited about coming on the Ed and Wendy show today. It's exciting. You have butterflies in your tummy. Your heart rate goes up. Your blood pressure is a little bit high. But that becomes can become pathological and becomes anxiety. And we all know and have been in situations with people when they're extremely anxious, what do they do? <laughs> they hyperventilate, right? And when you try to calm somebody down, what do you tell them? Just breathe, just breathe, watch me, slow down your breathing. And anybody in healthcare has done that with patients. Look at me, you try to get somebody to slow their breathing down. So intuitively we know that there is a connection between getting somebody to breathe in slowly through their nose and slow the rate and the depth of their breathing with them being able to control their nervous system and they control the nervous system by affecting different neurotransmitters. So when we start to look at sleep breathing disorders now, the issue is a heightened stress response, a lack of oxygenation, poor cellular respiration, 
the breathing is pathological. Mm -hmm. So if we want to translate that now and, and look at sleep, uh, breathing sleep disorders, that makes more sense because it's the breathing issues that contribute to the activation of the stress response, which then becomes pathological and in turn affects your ability to get a good night's sleep. Oh, so well, so well said. So well said. I do. There's a, there's a lot there. Yeah, for sure. And trying to simplify that information for folks, you know, condense this, you know, I'm all about efficiency. And when I began to notice years ago that I wasn't sleeping as well as I used to, I began to look into it and I found out that my body wasn't creating the same amount of melatonin that it was when I was younger. I found out that the average person, their lung tissue begins to deteriorate around the age of 30. Mm -hmm. This was about 25 years ago when I began to look into the yogic sciences and, and research uh, around uh, sleep. And it's just a, simply a natural function of, of nurturing ourselves without the need to, for reward. You know, it's an inner cleansing. It's an inner recoil. Mm -hmm. And when we start to look at breath control, we hack into our autonomic nervous system. We have the ability to regulate the parasympathetic and sympathetic mm -hmm. response as we move through the day. Okay. You know, one of the great secrets about pranayama or breath control is it's, it's great for your physiology. But when you begin to control your breath, what you're actually doing is you're turning on the top of your brain. You're turning on this hippocampus. And for adults, when we become aware of new ideas, new strategies, new concepts, it comes through our two prefrontal cortexes and it comes right back into the hippocampus. And you're like, aha, I don't need to respond to that stressor the same way I did five years ago. And over a period of time, that new awareness will go into the hindbrain or the subconscious brain, and the brain can reframe our perception of the stressors outside of us. But allowing the breath and breath control to keep our autonomic nervous system in balance, to keep our heart rate and blood pressure under control during our conscious hours, it's not about how many thoughts we have per day. It's about the quality of our thoughts. And all of this is tied in to our breathing habits. And when you think about breath, it, it's hard not to think about. It's the most valuable thing that we have because if you take it away, you only have minutes to live in your body. So if we start there with a baseline that you need to breathe, Mm -hmm. And what we would like to produce today is you need to breathe well. And this will be a major tool for keeping your energy levels high, for staying dynamic in the mind, for bypassing a lot of the places in the mind where we stub our toes. And we begin to take care of that during the day. It seems like we naturally, when the sun goes down, begin to become drowsy and just like every other animal on earth, fall asleep. Um, hey, Julia, you know, when you were just talking about sleep, um, disordered breathing and breathing disordered sleep, how, how does somebody, what's the difference between how somebody gets diagnosed with one versus the other today? And how does that make this whole topic confusing for people? 
It's confusing for people because the way the system is designed right now, it's um, insurance based. So you go and you get a test, you're looking at your AHI, which is your apnea hypopnea index. And they have decided that if you're five or less, that's normal. And, and what that means is if you stopped breathing five times an hour and your oxygen saturation dropped 3% in the States, 4% in Canada, that classifies as one um, apnea hypopnea event. So if you're if that happens to you five times an hour, they say that's normal. And we'll come back to that in a second. Okay. Uh, then from five to 15 and uh, 15 and over. So what that was designed to do, um, they're looking at mild, moderate and severe. Um, so severe would be like 30 and over. The problem with that is I hear people say, um, I have mild sleep apnea. Well, mild sleep apnea means could mean that you stop breathing 10 times an hour. So if you don't think that's impacting you, just think if you had an animal in your room and 10 times every hour, that dog whined for you to get up and let him out. It wouldn't be long before you were fed up with that dog, right? It's going to have an effect on your stress, your nervous system. And the problem is most people, this is happening, they're not even aware. It could be their loved one that tells them, but they're not aware, but it's being manifested in terms of high blood pressure, metabolic disease, depression, anxiety. A better thing to look at would be, what are the arousals that are happening in the brain? What is the heart rate variability? Is the heart showing that it is struggling or is it smooth and steady the whole night through? Some people, their heart looks like they're running up and down the stairs all through the night. And then they wonder why they have atrial fibrillation or some kind of arrhythmia. Um, you know, this is where when you start to look at the disease process that people are dealing with and the global burden of disease, and then you connect it to the their sleep, it's mind blowing. I mean, if you look at some statistics, so Parkinson's, for example, one in 500 people have Parkinson's, but there's um, awareness days, there's fundraisers, there's organizations, everybody is trying to raise awareness about this horrible disorder. Um, however, one in three people have insomnia and one in 30 have obstructive sleep apnea, and they actually overlap quite a bit. Mm. And if you have a REM-based sleep disorder, you are 81 to 94% more likely to get Parkinson's. So what are we missing? We're talking about this over here, but we're not connecting it for people to say that 10, 20, 30 years before you're diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment, dementia, um, Lewy bodies, mm -hmm. I mean, Alzheimer's, all of these things, you were probably complaining about sleep back here or somebody was telling you you were snoring. Or, but we have not done a good job at educating the public so that when we say you stop breathing during your sleep, that there are alarms going off and they want to get help. For some reason, people are resistant to get help. And I believe it's because we haven't educated them on, on what they could do. And, and when I tell people, let's look at your breathing, let's start talking about your breathing, let's talk about the fact that since I've been talking to you, your mouth has been hanging open, you're not using your nose. 
and your nose is going to release nitric oxide, which is going to relax your vessels, which is going to lower your blood pressure, which is going to make it easier for you to get to sleep tonight. They think I'm crazy. They're like, I, I'm coming to you with all of these issues and you're telling me you want to talk about my breathing. They're almost offended as if it's so simple and breathing is simple, but breathing well is not necessarily easy if you've developed a lifetime of, of poor habits with your breathing. There also seems to be uh, an amazing amount of people that uh, are provided medication uh, from their doctors for whatever ailment is the ailment of the week uh, this week. And I, I'm not saying that's not appropriate, but to some degree, the large scale prescription drugs that the majority of the culture is on has to be interfering somewhat with our neurotransmitters, the body's ability to shut down, the body's ability to mediate whatever the uh, the medication is in, in a healthy way to the best. It, it all takes energy. And I can't help but to think that, you know, we've kind of moved away from the older model, which was, you know, eating, you know, food that came out of the ground, you know, in the winter. And we ate lighter in the summer when the when the sun was higher. We had a walking routine. We'd walk after dinner and help with digestion. And we we had time with family where we just sat and talked without the cell phones and found out what's going on in your world and here's what's going on in mine. Just that, I mean, the human connection is really the only connection that really matters here on earth. I mean, these computers are great, but I digress. But so my, my question is, is, the, the medication and the lack of human connection affecting our ability to shut down at night? That's such a great question because <clears throat> so medical providers, they want to help. I mean, somebody comes to them and says, I can't sleep. They want to help. And they feel like they're helping by giving them a benzodiazepine, an amnesiac, a hypnotic, you know, uh, antidepressant. But the problem is all of these medications, when we talked about the structure of sleep, first four hours of your sleep, your brain is relatively quiet and your body is very actively going through and clearing out dead cells, debris, it's clearing out. Then the last part of your night, you're switching into the active part for your brain where your brain is processing memories, emotions, feelings, going through your day. It's a very important part of your sleep for brain health. But the medications that they use to help you close your eyes actually prevent you from getting into that really restorative part for your brain. And so your eyes are closed longer and you wake up and you think, great, my eyes were closed for seven hours. I haven't had my eyes closed for seven hours in years and you're happy. But the long-term effect of that is your brain doesn't get to get into that state where it can actually clean out and repair so that you have the wherewithal now when somebody says, okay, let's start working on your habits yeah. to be able to say, okay, let's see what that looks like. So that's talking about sleeping pills in particular. Um, if you're going to use them, there needs to be education about what they're used for. Some people are so desperate for sleep, they literally feel like they're going to die. And, and when we have people come into the emergency room, sometimes in a psychotic break because they haven't slept for four or five days, the best thing we can do for that person is give them something that lets them 
get into some sleep for sometimes they sleep 18, 20 hours. And then we can talk about what's going on in their life. What do they need help with? So that's the sleeping bill part of it. But most people don't realize that even the medications they take for blood pressure, cholesterol, you know, all of these other medications that they don't really realize will impact some part of their sleep. So that's why it's important to have somebody go through what medications are you on? Oh, okay. So you're on a beta blocker. That's going to diminish the amount of REM you get. So let's talk about how we can support you over here, um, getting into a calm state. What time are you going to bed? Let's maximize the hours of between 10 and seven for your sleep. So we're in harmony with your circadian rhythm. Like let's look at all the structures of sleep to help you mitigate that until we can get your blood pressure under control by alleviating your stress during the day, calming yourself, dealing more efficiently with your life and all of those wonderful things that come when you take back control of your nervous system instead of letting it get you into this ramped up state that you most people just live in that state. Yeah. This, this seems to be to me uh, a, a new phenomena that started in, in my lifetime. Uh, I, you know, my grandparents, my, my parents, yeah, they never had uh, any discussions about I can't sleep at night. Uh, and, and they had a ton of energy and they worked hard, you know, 18 hours a day. Uh, you know, what do you think is, you know, the big picture here that's spiking us into this inability to shut down? Um, I think you named a few things before when you were talking about our devices, our television um, the amount of time, I mean, hundreds of channels on TV, you have in your hand, you know, access to anything that you want. There's 24 hour news. The news is really, um, what do you call that when they, oh, it's <laughs> and but it's, it's really emotionally stimulating and they do that on purpose. They, they, they trigger, don't just tell they trigger the us. Pardon? It's a trigger that yes. they trigger us. And then there's an attachment to that trigger because there's a dopamine hit when we're, our senses are aroused. Yes. But, but the other part of this, too, is that this um, fear that most people live in comes from so many different angles. Fear of loss, fear of losing, fear for your children. Now you don't want your children to go outside. You don't feel safe for them to go outside and play. So people are indoors, indoors, indoors. And... If you look at being withdrawn from the sun and not even having access to the sun, the sun, we all are, are living in a sunshine deficiency. And that is really, that's what triggers our whole circadian rhythm. Right. So you're looking at sleep. We have our sleep drive, which occurs from just our, the food we're eating, our metabolism through the day, our sleep drive, adenosine based, your circadian rhythm, they should intersect. Withdrawal of stimuli, which means no electronics, no bad news before you go to sleep, calm, you know, environment, lower your lights. So there's all these things that kind of have to intersect. And, and most people are so disconnected from how our body works. They don't understand that a lot of what they need, it doesn't come from outside of you. It's from within and giving your body the chance to actually normalize itself and level itself out. Um, and then once we've gotten into that state, it requires a little bit more effort. Uh, I know that when I first started working with you, Ed, um, I was a lifetime mouth breather. 
So for, for, but I didn't realize it. I didn't know it was an, an issue um, until I started to try to keep my mouth closed and breathe through my nose. And then I was like, I'm not getting enough air. I'm not getting enough air. I can't do this. This is ridiculous. And you have, it's amazing to me the stories that people tell themselves. They know they don't feel well and they create a story that explains why they don't feel well. And then all of a sudden you're coming and saying, no, it's actually because you're mouth breathing all day. They're like, no, 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 no. The story I tell myself is it's because of this, that, and the other. So it, it's really, you know, this is where education and small bits to tell people that actually let's just start from the most basic thing that from the moment you're born, you should be able to do. And now you're not. So what happened? Let's get back to what you're supposed to be able to do from birth and start there. And the people who trust you enough to work with you to do that are amazed and their lives are completely transformed. But unfortunately, we need to find a way to get this information out so that people can understand and give themselves permission to, to start and to take care of themselves in a way that goes back to what was natural. I wouldn't even say normal because normal now is dysfunction. Right. Um, and it's common, but it's not normal how people are living right now. You know, Julia, you just said something that um, that made me think, you know, when, when you're talking to, when we're talking to people and telling them that we go back, right, we just need to go back to your breathing. We need to keep it this simple. People get frustrated um, and they don't want to look at the simplest things that if we change the lifestyle, they could improve our health so much. It's like people want to be told it's much, what needs to be done is much more complicated, right? Because everything in people's lives feels hard today. So mm -hmm. no, it's got to be more than just focusing on my breathing or if I'm, if I'm overweight, it, it can't be just that I fix my food, right? Some of these things really are that simple and but we're living so out of balance in our body minds today. So you, you were starting to talk about um, circadian rhythms and mm -hmm. for people that are on here who may not know what that means. What are our circadian rhythms and the natural um, uh, biochemical, physiological processes that are happening during the body over a 24 hour period? So exactly through a 24 hour period, every organ in your body has a time period or a window of time that it repairs itself. And uh, that's on a cellular level and in our organs, but also for us as a person. And most people can identify with that if we were to say, you know, in the morning, if you didn't have your alarm clock on, you would wake up like you, you wouldn't just sleep all day unless there was something terribly wrong with you. You would wake up sometime <laughs> after the sun started to come up. Right. Um, and that's your circadian rhythm triggering you to wake up. So that's your wake drive. And then throughout the day, you know, you have periods where you feel more um, able to do things and then you have a lull after lunch between two and four. You know, you kind of struggle through that that kind of period and then you get a second wind. Well, that is your circadian rhythm at work and at nighttime around, uh, you know, if you're an adult, I'm not even talking kids here, but if you're an adult, you know, around nine, 10 o'clock at night, you'll start to feel a dip. Uh, a lot of people will push through that because Not they want good. to stay up for whatever reason. Yeah. And then your body responds and says, oh, 
They don't want to go to bed, even though this is the time for them to go to bed. They want to stay up. So come on, adrenaline, give them a little boost so they can stay up longer. And then we push ourselves past where our body wanted to go to bed. We stay up doing whatever stimulating activity. And then we lay in our bed because we say, okay, it's midnight, one, two o'clock in the morning. I want to go to sleep now. We lay there and wonder, come on, why can't I get to sleep? What's wrong? Something's terribly wrong. And it's because we didn't listen when our body gave us the gentle nudge before that it was time to go to sleep. And after a while, your body stops even giving you the nudge. You've, you've just broken that circadian rhythm so badly that now you have to really try to make friends with your body again, make peace with your body and be kind and apologize to your body and give it permission to actually work with the rhythm that it is designed for. And then through the night, those hours between two and four, so two and four in the afternoon and two and four in the morning are very important times for the body's restoration. Um, but people who have pathological sleep will end up waking up around three, four o'clock in the morning and can't fall back to sleep. That is a clear sign that their circadian rhythm is off. So there's many reasons for that. And I know we we're talking today about sleep and breathing, but it all comes back around. So that's 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 your circadian rhythm. It, it basically is a, a balancing system that takes care of the, the maintenance of your whole body. And it's got a job to do. It's got certain times it's scheduled to do those jobs and we are working against it. You speak to this. Uh, a lot of the patients I have, the clients I have, uh, it's, it's almost like there's a, a sleep procrastination consciously where they don't want to close their eyes. It's like they're afraid of the dark yeah. and they'll be totally exhausted psychologically before they'll go lie down. And by then they've missed that opportunity because the energy is going to come back up around midnight and keep you up till two. So, you know, we, we have this stress that we all interact with all day long. Some of it's positive. It's great. It's for growth. Some of it is not so positive. It's negative. And it really fires off that amygdala in the brain, that fear center that organizes attack and defend protocols, because it doesn't know that these are just thoughts. It actually really thinks that there's a bear that's going to swipe you down. <laughs> so when it when it does become become time for bedtime, the amygdala is so fired up. It's basically saying to us, it's not safe to go to sleep mm -hmm. because we're still in danger from a series of events that occurred at 11 o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. And and what's heartbreaking about that, Ed, is that there are there are people who have had severe trauma in their life, uh, trauma in childhood. And that um, can decrease the amount of REM that they have. And so they don't really ever get to process that. And that becomes a perpetuating cycle for them. It's heartbreaking. It's very difficult for people. So that's, you know, addressing the trauma in your life uh, becomes really important. Um, the other part of it is elevation of like serotonin in your brain or, you know, the stress response being turned on. You see this, it starts in childhood. We see that with children with night terrors. And it doesn't necessarily go away as they get older if we don't intervene and correct what is causing that in the first place. So I think that that's one of the most heartbreaking things that I see is how many people are suffering. And, and sleep is such a beautiful gift when you think about it.
Mm-hmm. This whole day and to be able to lay down and rest and relax and wake up refreshed, to be able to have that is a gift. And so many people are basically um, starving for that release from their day. Um, so that's where, you know, what even when we're if we're working in the field of uh, psychiatry, mental health, and we're helping people with trauma, and there's, you know, the buzzword about trauma-informed care. Um, I I feel like we need to be working with a lot of those folks too to teach people how to ground themselves, how to use their breath to control their mind and their nervous system when they're in those moments, and how to view sleep as um, a safe place. Even the terminology as healthcare providers that we use. One of the things that I liked about talking to people about their airway and starting the conversation with the airway, as opposed to going right to sleep, is because for some people, the thought of sleep is something that's very private, very personal. None of us like to feel like somebody's watching us when we're sleeping. We don't like people taking pictures of us when we're sleeping. You know, it feels very vulnerable. And and a lot of people don't go to get tested because somebody's gonna be recording them, watching them, listening to them. So the the trauma around all of that and, and that disconnect that we have with what may have been that person's experience and now the only way to heal them is to address this becomes critical. Um, For trauma patients in particular, one of the effective therapies out there is EMDR. And that's that eye movement desensitization. And what they're doing is they're getting the person to look with their eyes because in sleep, in REM, when your eyes are going back and forth, it's accessing a part of your brain that can deal with and process those memories. But when you have somebody in trauma that's not getting enough REM, their brain never gets to go and process that. So our bigger issue should be helping people to calm their nervous system enough before bed so that their brain feels safe enough to let them get into REM and process those memories for them. We're kind of doing it all backwards. Mm. Uh, but we're, we're getting there though, because it is an educational process. In other words, we have a bedrock of information that's been researched that works. The right. second part, that's only the first step. It needs to be experienced. You need to, you can't just be book smart on this. You have to go in and notice how it invites you to feel about the intention of what you're trying to undertake. Mm-hmm. When I look at serotonin, I look at serotonin as a prerequisite for melatonin. And mm-hmm. these two work off of each other as neurotransmitters to prepare the brain to organize itself from what has taken place during the day, store it back in the hindbrain, and then come back out to our two prefrontal cortexes when we open our eyes in the morning, and hopefully with vitality and just this amazing opportunity to get back out there in the field for a day and just do the best you can with the skills you got and constantly try to improve, keep learning new things, keep being curious, doing things that keep us in the body. Well, one of the things that connected you and I in the first place was, you know, I was on this journey of learning and intuitively I knew that we often use breath to calm people. Um, But then when I heard you doing a presentation where you were describing the breath coming in, 
where it went. Like it, you kind of created this visual pathway of how the, the breath was being used in the body. And I was just like, man, I just got it because it was like, we, we talk about breathing, but we, we don't talk about breathing. Well, we just assume if you're breathing, that's a great job. <laughs> you're breathing good for you. But you ask somebody who has COPD or asthma or emphysema, they're breathing or anxiety, right? They're not breathing well and they don't feel well. And we understand that, but we're not understanding the connection between bypassing the entire system of breathing through your nose to your brain first before that you take the breath into your lungs where we bypass this whole system and we're paying the cost for that now. Yeah. So most of the clients that I have, by the time they come to me, they've already been through the conventional medicine ringer and they're kind of at the end of their rope and they're really depressed and, uh, you know, not feeling too good about their chances uh, about getting a good night's sleep. And then I just come to here and I say, ladies and gentlemen, everything runs off of right here. And, you know, they give you that. Yeah, whatever. You're Ed Harold. You must know what you're talking about. So I say, just just hang in there with me with this. And we're going to we're going to draw some lines. We're going to map this out for you in a way that we can understand it. So we'll start to talk about, OK, the structure of the face right. and how that is either helping us breathe or hindering us to breathe. Well, before we get to that, it's you got to shut the mouth. The mouth is for eating and the nose is for breathing. The nose can no more easily eat than the mouth can breathe. This mouth breathing thing is only an emergency, emergency breathing mechanism to keep you alive until you can establish nostril breathing again, the same way you were doing when you were just a six month old baby. The DNA is designed for amplification and efficiency coming in and out through the nose, creating various suction and pressures throughout our capillaries and arteries, organs, muscles, bones, and neural systems. Getting that facial features to relax, this is a big part about getting a good night's sleep, is during the daytime, continue to release and relax the muscles you use to move your eyes. Don't strain your eyes if you don't have to, unless it's an emergency. Let the eyes rest back in the socket. Get a lot of fresh blood flow through those opening cranial nerves that help the brain organize the moment for us, adapt into that environment, switch gears, produce safety in your cardiovascular system. Separate the mandible and the maxilla just slightly. So there's just a little space between the upper and lower jaw and notice immediately how your brain responds to that. Let the top of the tongue rest on the upper palate so the maxilla is inviting the nostril channels to move east and west rather than shrink smaller. So over time, that upper jawbone is going to play a huge role in either your efficiency or inefficiency of the primal airway of the nasal channel. Super important. So when we think about breathing, number one on the inhale, I want you to think about your diaphragm muscle, which is a horizontal muscle that separates your chest cage from your abdominal belly. And when you inhale through your nose, the diaphragm muscle vertically presses down towards your low back, number one, creating an erect spine. So many muscles can turn off to hold the spine straight so you're not wasting energy during the day and your posture is erect. Number two, as that diaphragm moves down, air is drawn into the lower lobes of the lungs. 
And we know that the lower lobes of the lungs are imbued with parasympathetic, oxygen-rich, hemoglobin-rich nerve endings. So we respond to the moment. We don't react to the moment. We feel the moment first during the day before we take action on it. There's a, just that microscopic split second where we can be neuroplastic in the brain. As that diaphragm moves down on that inhale, the floating ribs, the ribs that aren't attached to the breastplate, pull down and on the right side of your belly, you'll get a wonderful massage on the energy of your liver and your gallbladder. And on the left side of your belly, those ribs will pull down and it'll massage your stomach and spleen. And this is just fundamental breathing, belly breathing, simple diaphragmatic breathing is getting that diaphragm down. Massage the organs of the upper abdomen, optimal spinal posture so you're not overworking muscles and your digestion becomes stronger. As the inhale evolves to the collarbone, remember the top of the sleeves of the lungs are sympathetic in their qualities. So let's just break this down very simply. When you're breathing through your mouth, the air never reaches the lower lobes of the lungs. It only goes into the top sleeve of your lungs where all that cortisol and adrenaline, high-edge energy goes there. It spikes the heart rate, spikes the blood pressure up. You lose your lower body mechanics, so the vertebra collapse down in the lower spine. Digestion becomes sluggish. When that becomes sluggish, foggy mind will come next. So think about the mouth breathing. The air is just in the chest. We want that energy moving down into the gut. We want to alkaline and balance alkalinity in the blood and in our gastrointestinal organs. And that's just on the inhale. <laughs> now, there's a lot of just oh, go ahead, Julia. You want to add something to that? No, I just want to I just want to mirror along with what you're saying, because when you asked, how do you know the difference between a sleep disorder breathing or breathing disordered sleep? If we were to go down everything that you said, you said, keep the face uh, muscles around the eyes open and relaxed. So the converse of that is when you see people that have these deep lines in between their eyes, you know, that you want to be opening that up and you actually feel you can change your whole feeling. You feel joy when you open up your eyes. The other part of it then with the nose and looking at the flatness of these cheeks, when somebody is having trauma or stressed and their nervous system is completely stressed out, you get a flattening of these muscles right in here. You look mm -hmm. at the upper jaw. Can they breathe through their nose? Is it because they have, they've sucked their thumb? You know, they were bottle free fed with a, a I don't want to keep going into the breastfeeding and bottle feeding because I know that it can be controversial for people if you have to bottle feed, but being aware of the mouth being closed so that the muscles still help to develop the face. So if anybody ever had braces done because they had crowded teeth, you have a breathing disorder that led to those teeth being crowded. You may have had the teeth corrected, but did you have the underlying breathing issue corrected? Is your tongue, they say your tongue is too big. Well, why is it too big? Is it because your breathing has been poor? The tongue has muscle has not been exercised to be up in that palate. So it's just getting floppy hanging down. Uh, you know, those are issues too. look at your tongue. How wide is it? How strong is that muscle? The jaw, if you look at my face, because I was a chronic mouth breather, my jawbone here is at a really steep angle down. 
Um, that is evidence that I was breathing through my mouth all the time, not my nose. Otherwise, the angle should have been more parallel to the floor. Look at the forehead. Is the forehead perpendicular or is it leaning, you know, way back? So there's lots of things as you're talking. I'm visualizing what types of things we would assess so somebody would know. These are all signs that are very visible on your face and in the structure of your face. In the, in the world of sleep, we talk about forward head posture. It wasn't until I worked with you, Ed, that I came to realize the importance of the diaphragm. Because we always say that the tongue is occluding the back of the throat, so people lean forward to open their airway. But if the diaphragm muscle is weak, the whole rib cage begins to cave down and forward, and that pulls the neck out. So when you see people and their, their ear is not aligned with their shoulder or their hip, you have to think diaphragm and strengthen that diaphragm to hold up the rib cage so they can do all the wonderful things that you're describing. So it's really um, these, these worlds coming together. This is what excites me because we'll only have part of the story if we only keep looking at the same information that we've always looked at. We need to start looking in different directions and then piecing all of these, um, th this information together. You know, and you're talking about trauma and, you know, folks are, uh, you know, holding on to trauma in the past. You know, as that diaphragm becomes stronger and the phrenic nerve, which is the motor nerve of the diaphragm, becomes more electrified and it pushes down more into our gut during our waking hour. If you do more of that belly breathing, you know, we are kind of churning emotion. We're churning emotion from events that have occurred in the past. And then the brain has the ability to reorganize the story in, in meditation or exercise and, and break that up and, and gradually move, move away from it. Mm -hmm. You know, because when it comes to the gut, you know, either you're going to churn your emotions, what you're carrying with you from the past up into this moment, or they're going to churn you. There really isn't any middle road. And when you think of the diaphragm muscle, it's not really a muscle. It's actually an organ. It is so responsible for so many different things to keep this in homeostasis and balance we could do a weekend program on it. The diaphragm gets short shift. There's no doubt it's the most important muscle out of all 610 muscles to keep us energized during the day and then have the ability to get that restful, dynamic, loving sleep. Sleep is a, a chance you get to love yourself. It's a, it's a form of self-love, self-massage. And you are all, we are all worthy of this regardless of missteps or events that have occurred in the past that we uh, didn't want to be involved in. So when you think about the diaphragm, study the diaphragm muscle. Study how it can be manipulated through breath control or pranayama. And that's, that's just really what's happening on the inhale. As a culture, the reason why we're probably disordered sleeping is because we're not exhaling. It's the exhale so is the chronic problem of humanity on this planet, regardless of where you are. Nobody's exhaling because in their mind, they're running away or running towards something as fast as they possibly can, taking these little inhales, going as fast as they possibly go. I don't need to exhale. But well, you know what, Ed? Do you know how many people teach, breathe in through nose, out through your mouth? And so for years, I thought I was doing the right thing. And I remember... Uh, the moment things changed for me, I used to, so when you work in the emergency department, you're on the code team for the hospital. So the code blue would go off, you know, you grab your stuff, you go running. And I would be like, whoo, whoo, 
And I get there. And, then I'm like, and here, I'm supposed to run a code, but I'm out of breath. I'm not thinking straight. I feel dizzy. And, and then after working with you, I thought, I'm just going to try it. And I ran to the code. <laughs> but I got there and I felt calm, in control. I was not out of breath. I, so I didn't understand that by breathing through your mouth, you're letting your air just fall out of you until I connected it with in medicine, we use what's called PEEP. So we have positive and expiratory pressure. We will put a valve to prevent the air from coming out quickly. We want the air to come out slowly because when we do that, the oxygen exchange rate at the base of the lungs is increased. And, mm -hmm. and then their whole nervous system is calm. So we, we dial it in for that. It never occurred to me that by closing my mouth, I would be able to give myself my own pee in order to mm -hmm. benefit fully from that inhale of oxygen until you pieced it together for me. And the difference that you feel is just, and it lasts your whole day. Like, it's not like I, I have to keep doing it all day but whenever I need it, it's there for me and I can instantly bring myself back into that calm state. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, CO2 get, gets a bad rap. And uh, somewhere along the line, people started this mouth breathing on the exhale. And uh, it's now it's in fitness clubs. It's in mm -hmm. uh, the medical world. You know, do the whoo, you know, that ain't going to make it, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, carbon dioxide has two oxygen molecules. Your inhale has two oxygen molecules. You're exhaling as much oxygen as your inhale. You do not want it to come out through your mouth. And in fact, if you're under stress, the CO, you need to build up CO2 tolerance to keep your cardiovascular system strong, to continue to metabolize fat, to lower inflammatory markers, and to be able to control the stressor so it doesn't control you. So learning how to build up CO2 tolerance starts by finishing your exhale right now. And then finishing your exhale right now. Right now, you're rewiring your brain to remember how you were breathing when you came out of your mother. Everybody was nostril breathing unless you were sick. There was no mouth breathing until the ego developed. So learning how to extract the oxygen out of the CO2, let the carbon burn the waste, add those two oxygen molecules to the O2 that's going to come in on the next inhale, and you've just doubled your energy source in a natural organic way with no side effects. Right. Right. So if sleep is the gift that we give to ourselves, sleep is the new medicine, then oxygen is its most potent drug. Using the oxygen that you have to its maximum ability is going to help you far better than anything else that we might be guessing at yeah. to help you. Look at it at nature. What's the most abundant molecule on the planet? Oxygen. Mm -hmm. What's the second? H2O. What do you need? Air and water. That's where we start. And that begins to humidify and steam the system to keep us in balance in that 24-hour cycle. But getting folks to really take a look at their breathing pattern 
during the day because the body works on echoes. So what happened previously is going to have to be adjusted later in the day or mm -hmm. at night. And you'll notice it takes a tremendous amount of energy to sleep well. So if you had a day of many breaths per minute in a sympathetic response all the time, there's no serotonin on reserve. Everything is burned. Cortisol and adrenaline levels are high. You're running all over the place. You're exhausted. You think it's going to, wow, you're going to have a great night's sleep. Look at all the energy you use. You're exhausted. You can't <laughs> sleep. Uh -huh, uh -huh. The idea is to get through the day breathing through your nose with the least amount of breaths per minute. Specifically, let's shoot for 10. Stay in that parasympathetic branch. Hack into the autonomic nervous system. Remember, your respiration rate per minute is going to represent your heart rate. Your heart rate is going to represent your blood pressure. Blood pressure is going to dictate neurochemistry, either open or closed channel. And when we're closed in the brain and when we're in a negative stress form, the body starts to only burn sugar and glucose. It doesn't burn our fat stores. Now, remember, if you're dealing with trauma, the trauma that you're carrying around isn't stored in your glucose and sugar supplies. It's stored in your fat cells. It vibrates in the fat cells. So just breathing correctly in and out through your nose, full inhale, full exhale, Say every couple hours you take 10 breaths to yourself to really slow life down. Just right in that, you're clearing those imprints from your body that are influencing your mind to go back into a troublesome event and replay it in the present moment. All right. I'm going to jump in. Because <laughs> I, have, I have a question for Julia. Uh, for women, um, I think this might resonate with a lot of women, maybe a lot of men too, who are dealing with their wives who are going through menopause. I feel like the menopause discussion is not a big discussion in sleep health and it should be. Mm -hmm. Um, so for me right now, and I'm a person with a pretty strong breathing practice, um, I'm in full on menopause and I have to double down on my breathing during the day and at night um, to deal with the anxiety that comes from it. But then also I'll wake up in the middle of the night and realize that I'm, I'm almost hiccuping breathing. It's, it's this like short, rapid mm -hmm. breath that's happening through my nose, but it's this short, rapid breath. And then I can't fall, I can't go back to sleep. So I either can't fall asleep or I will be that person who will wake up at like three or four and I've got to do my breathing to fall back asleep. So luckily I have those tools, but I even have those tools and I'm somebody who's experiencing that. And I feel like that's a lost discussion in sleep health. Mm -hmm. And do you ever wake up like feeling overheated and oh, like sweating? Yeah. 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 And, and that's the thing is that, um, you know, if we're going to look at statistics, then when a woman goes through, menopause and her hormones change, her statistics become similar to men's. So that's where things kind of change as well in terms of the, you know, the change in the hormones from the estrogen, the progesterone and, and our testosterone even. Um, and if we're carrying extra fat, we're not producing the right combinations. All of those hormones do affect our neurotransmitters and our ability to sleep. Mm -hmm. um, we have to look at our vitamin B levels. We look at our vitamin D, 
we look at our thyroid and keep an eye on your thyroid and make sure that that is functioning properly. And if all of those things are true, then we're looking at the physical uh, response to the hyperhidrosis and the sweating because your body goes to sleep when your temperature drops and your circadian rhythm is also revolves around your temperature. So when temperature goes up, it thinks maybe it's time to get up. So maintaining a cool environment. And, and I hear people, um, you know, the wife wants the window open and blankets off and it's freezing and the husband wants the blankets on and, you know, or vice versa. So definitely temperature has a lot to do with that. But the, the problem is with the hormones, the relaxation of your tongue and of your throat muscles can lead you to be much more susceptible to a sleep breathing disorder like uh, OSA or um, obstructive sleep apnea. So looking at, are you snoring? Are you having any gasping? Are you waking up with gasping? Because now that's going to cause a, an outpouring of adrenaline to tone those muscles so you could take a breath. Um, oh, what was the other thing I was going to say about that? The, so the hormones relax the muscles. Mm, I just lost it. That's okay. Hang on. No, no, no. So, I mean, um, the sleep breathing disorders, the, uh, oh, I know what I was going to say. It's similar to pregnancy. So right. when people are in pregnancy and their hormones change, it makes them much more susceptible to, right. to start having apneas, which can be very dangerous for the fetus and puts them at a higher rate of having gestational diabetes and pregnancy induced hypertension. So the same action that occurs there can occur during menopause when there's this change of hormones. So now you're risking type two diabetes, you're risking hypertension. Uh, we tend to see women at, at this period of time starting to have maybe more anxiety, maybe to feel depressed, irritable, moody during the day. And they say, oh, she's going through the change. Well, yeah, but the change is actually causing a lot of physiological changes. And if the sleep is being disrupted alongside that, you're going to have a lot more difficulty managing those side effects and those changes that occur. Yeah. So at the base of everything, every disorder that you have, protecting sleep becomes really critical. Um, and, and while I'm here, I'm going to jump to mental health because it's such a big thing right now. We start to see a breakdown in sleep a good six months prior to somebody starts to complain about depression and anxiety. So when you hear somebody, you know, struggling with these symptoms, and you're also aware that their sleep is poor, that really needs to be honed in on sleep breathing disorders that we're talking about today or breathing disordered sleep is only one of about 80 different sleep disorders that you could be diagnosed with. They all impact some aspect of sleep. So for women, it is it is troublesome, um, but fortunately, uh, it seems to be short lived. It's if it continues on and you're still having issues, um, definitely speak up and reach out. Don't be shy about that because it's well known yeah. that these hormonal changes cause a lot of these issues. Yeah, yeah. I thought it would be good. Does to does a meditation practice during the day help us get a good night's sleep? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and actually, I, don't, I could talk to you guys all night. But, <laughs> but um, you know, one of the things 
waking up first thing in the morning, feet on the ground, take a couple minutes to do some slow breathing to start your day, get your mind set for the day. But Ed, what would you tell people to do before they go to bed at night? How, how could they, let's say they had a, a rough day. Does that mean they have no, there's nothing for them? Or how could they quickly tone down that dial on their nervous system? It's all about preparation. Preparation is the key to success in regard to anything you're trying to do in your mind and body. So I, I come to the edge of my bed. I press my feet down. And the first thing I want to do is I want to break up the day at the trunk of my neck, the tops of my shoulders, any impairment to the heart, and along the back. So everything that's in my past. So I'll just focus my breath. I'll take one hand out front, so I have my right hand. I'll just reach it to the left. I'll bend the elbow, and I just open the shoulder girdle, and I just twist, and then I bring the right hand back to the right leg. I'll take the left hand. All this is done gentle. I'll take the left hand to the right. I'll bend the elbow. I'll open the shoulder girdle, and I'll just try to break up any stressors that are in the top of my shoulders from being on the computer, any rounding or hunching of the back, and I'm trying to open up the airway around my ribs, around my chest, and just moving the hands like this, it sinks the two prefrontal cortexes with a focused breath so you can set your intention for a good night's sleep. Just several rounds, just nice and easy. And just, you'll notice as soon as you come out of it, it's easier to breathe. It's, it's hard to fall asleep when your breathing's disturbed. Next thing, set an intention. My intention, I would prefer a restful night's sleep. I would prefer a restful night's sleep. I slow my breath down. I relax the features of my face. And I begin a mental process called noticing. It's not meditation. It's noticing. So whatever comes across the ticker tape of my brain, I notice it without interacting in it. It's just an electrical current moving across my brain and I don't need to adjust it, tinker with it, help it, defend it, attack it. It's just noticing. So I'm withdrawing from the external environment. I slow my breath down, I inhale and I pause. I would prefer a healthy night's sleep. Exhale, before I inhale, I pause. I say silently. I would prefer a restful night's sleep or whatever the short phrase would be for you. Slow motion inhale. Don't agitate the mind. Slow motion inhale. Pause. Set your intention. Slow motion nostril exhale. Pause. Set your intention. And then one more. Slow motion inhale. Steady the mind. Bring the blood pressure down. Set your intention. Slow motion, exhale, feel your body unwinding, relaxing, letting go, pause, set your intention. So that simple movement that just opens up the upper body so the ribs are like rubber bands. So it's easier to breathe. And when it's easier to breathe, it's easier for the mind-body connection to be congruent with, with your intention. Slow motion, inhale, pause. Slow motion, exhale, pause. It's just like box breathing, except the holding in and the holding out are just for a split second. Mm -hmm. 
So it's not like box breathing where it might be inhale five, hold five, exhale five, hold out five. You don't, you don't need that. Okay. What you need is to calm the mind down and slow the breathing down and set intention. Now, if you awaken in the middle of the night and you want to fall back asleep, remember these nasal channels are pretty intelligent. Remember the right nostril on the inhale is sympathetic. And the left nostril on the exhale is sympathetic. The left nostril on the inhale is parasympathetic. And the right nostril on the exhale is parasympathetic. And this crossing that takes place through these two prefrontal cortexes amplifies the corpus callosum, which is a series of matted nerves that separate the feeling intuitive brain from the cognitive rational brain. And the more we can turn this corpus callosum on, the more we can use whole brain messages. One of the ways that we can do this to get back to sleep is to turn off the sympathetic nerve channels, which we know are the left nostril on the in, uh, the right nostril on the inhale and the left nostril on the exhale. So if I've awakened in the middle of the night, poor me, the sky is falling. I don't know why I've awakened, but I would like to fall back asleep. So how can I fall back asleep? I take my thumb. I close off my right nostril. I inhale slowly up my left nasal channel, which is parasympathetic in its nerve receptors. I close off the left. I open the right and I exhale slowly. The right nostril on the exhale is parasympathetic. I close off the right, open the left. Slow motion inhale, left nostril, right prefrontal lobe. Close off the left, slow motion exhale out the right. Close off the right, slow motion inhale up the left. Close off the left, exhale right. Three to five rounds, you'll probably fall right back to sleep within two to three minutes because you're bringing up the relaxation qualities of the parasympathetic nerve channels. You're turning off the sympathetic nerve channels of adrenaline and cortisol and that high edge energy that might have awoken you. One of the reasons why you might have awakened at the middle of the night simply is that your right nostril at that point is more efficient than your left and you spike the brain into the beta brain or consciousness. It's no big deal. It just happened. You can reboot these rhythmic patterns of the nose by controlling the breathing. If that little technique doesn't work for you, add a baby pause. That little pause set your intention to fall back asleep. So it might be close off the right, slow motion inhale up the left nostril without straining, pause, set your intention, stay centered, close off the left, exhale right, pause, set your intention, close off the right, open the left, and you'd repeat that two or three more times with these baby little retentions. There's no long holdings. It's just enough to create a little gap in the mind and a little gap in the breathing system where you can reestablish control of the mind and allow the body to fall back asleep. Good stuff. Good stuff, guys.
feels so chill now. Right? Right? We're, we're ready for bed, although still got to cook dinner and stuff. So <laughs> um, I did, you know, we've gone over in time a little bit, but um, but I think we were anticipating that because, you know, you two get together and it's like, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. So much to cover. Um, but it is an exciting time for you, Julia, and I want um, everybody to be aware of the new Best Sleep magazine. So while we have a new, a couple minutes still, would you please talk about the magazine and the pillars and your contributing editor for Breath? Yes, I am so excited because one of the, the challenges has been how do we get this information out to people who are suffering today and cannot wait years for us to figure this out? So I'm very fortunate that I was approached by um, an amazing marketing company and we are launching a magazine where we will bring all of these amazing providers together to share their piece on how to benefit yourself to get the best sleep ever. Ed, we're so happy, is going to be a regular contributing uh, author. And um, he will be addressing the pillar, the very first pillar of health, which is breath. Um, breath and then sleep, our diet and nutrition, and the ability to move and get everything moving. So this has been perfect to start with you guys tonight. Um, our the way that we're doing it is that it, they'll be digital. There can be print, but the, what's exciting about the digital is you can click on, uh, when Ed talks about some of the exercises, you can click on and be taken to Best Sleep TV, where you can see Ed actually demonstrating it and, and see live videos of people demonstrating what they're talking about. So we're trying to make it really interactive, thinking what's the best way to serve people. Uh, so I am so excited and actually, I think, Ed, you have a link for anybody who joined us today to to subscribe for free, to get it for free for the rest of the year, which is yeah. exciting. And we are open to your feedback. I want to hear from you. Um, and it just, yeah, to me, this is a dream come true to be able to have a platform to bring all of these amazing people together and share with the world what they're doing. Yeah, we'll have a link um, for everybody. It'll be in the description with this video. So uh, it'll definitely be on the YouTube version of this video and I'll work it into the Facebook uh, version of it so everybody finds it, but yeah, yeah. awesome. Yeah, one of the great parts about Julia, ladies and gentlemen, is she really, really cares about people. And I mean that without ego. And she's a lifelong learner. And when Julia's on your team, you will never fail. And I'm grateful to be a partner with her in this uh, upcoming uh, journey on the best sleep magazine, but I, you know, I learned so much in the last hour listening to you. You're just a plethora of knowledge. <laughs> Thank you so much. I feel the same way about you. <laughs> well, you know. Thank you. A restful night's sleep is only one breath away, ladies and gentlemen. Amen to that. So, uh, thank you, everybody, for uh, for joining us today. I hope you got a lot out of this. Go be great. <laughs> Thanks, Thank everyone. you, Julia. Good night. Good night, love. Good night. Take care. Thank you.